Welcome to Journal Spotting. Have you been trying to keep up with the COVID literature, but you're too shattered after work these days to read anything except your local takeout menu? Your ears are in the right place. This is the General Medicine Podcast that will bring you a monthly roundup of the top practice-changing articles, along with specialist interviews, guidelines, and more. We scour the journals so that you don't have to. We are the Journal Spotters. Journal Spotting is back. We had to take a little break because I was away on holiday partying with my podcast influencer friends in Dubai over Christmas. And Barney has been busy organizing anti-lockdown protests around the world and burning 5G masts. It's the only way we're going to cure COVID, so, you know. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, wait. No, sorry. Reading the wrong intro. If only life was that exciting. I've been stuck at home where the biggest decision of the day has been really which Zoom background to use. And Barney, if working as a respiratory registrar in a pandemic wasn't hard enough, you've also been trying to raise two very small children. How are you, mate? Very good, thank you. They're getting less and less small by the day, I must say. Um, yeah, it'd be fine. Obviously, being busy as hell at work and at home. And, um, you know, I've had a few interesting things going on, you know. Uh, you know what, John, I'm going to try and keep my anecdotes to a to a minimum for the first time ever. So... How about you get a choice, right? You've got a choice of three potential anecdotes. One is our 1,000-piece Where's Wally puzzle, which we completed the other day and we're pretty proud of. Two is my recent foray into making ridiculously strong and questionably nice beer. And three is the sad and slightly tragic, but also slightly amusing tale of a, um, a dead rat on call. Wow, it's like Christmas all over again. <laughs> <laughs> I had COVID for Christmas, so this is arguably better. Oh, you had COVID for Christmas. Uh, I did. What, what, COVID. Gosh, Un- you must have been naughty all year. Unwrapped it. Um, I think I'm going to have to go for the dead rat on call, as tantalizing as the first two were. You've got to go, go for the then. dead rat. Okay, fine. I'll try to be brief. Right? I was on call right before Christmas, just as things were starting to get busy. I was on take. Uh, my colleague was on the wards. And she, um, she at nighttime, she went to get some food in the office, which she uses during the day. And she heard this banging in the corridor, right? And yeah, she was looking around for it. She'd heard this rumor about a rat, which had been in the area, which had been spotted. And uh, she heard this banging in one of the cupboards. So she opened one of the cupboards and it had loads of like sharp boxes and other sort of, you know, bits and bobs. And she was like, oh, bloody hell, there's a rat in here. So who do I phone? She phones estates, fair enough. And a guy phones, he's like, oh, sorry, love, I'm, I'm an electrician. Um, but I'll come and have a look. Maybe if we can find the rat, if it's one of one of these boxes, we can just let it out outside. Brilliant. Okay. So he comes along. They go into the into the room together, and sure enough, in one of the sharp spins boxes, they find they there's a rat. It's it's banging around the place all over. The big issue is that somehow, two things here. The box Does this become locked. a murder? Does this become a murder story? This is oh like a murder God. story. The box is locked. And so they, and they're like, oh, well, we just need to get it out somehow. So they're asking around. Apparently, you, you can't open these things once they're locked shut. And the box was also full of sharps. Oh, oh mate, this is horrible. This is horrible. And quite quickly, there was no more banging. And oh. so my poor colleague was like, oh, my God, what do I do? I, 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 what what do you do? You've got a dead rat in a, in a sharp spin yeah. in the middle of the night. So she just left this little note, which we've got a photo of, which was um, rat inside. <laughs> it, I think it's dead. 
And that was it. I just left this box and then carried on her shift because it was a busy shift and she had some sick actual people to deal with as well. So there we go. That's my Christmassy story. <laughs> Bloody hell. Right. Okay. Well, after that grim start, it's great to be back. We're both in our first year of training as COVIDologists, as I'm sure many of you are also. And it, it was only meant to be a one-year training program, but it's looking more and more like everyone's going to have to prolong their training. To help us best manage all the COVID patients we're seeing on the ward right now, Barney and I thought it'd be a good idea to bring you the latest evidence-based COVID. You're absolutely right, John. So this week, we are going to cover the drug you've been pretending to know how to pronounce all week long, beginning with a T, how to prevent delirium in COVID ICU patients, asymptomatic spread, ACE inhibitors again, DVT and self-proning. But before we dive in, uh, as always, we'd really love to hear from you. So please do get in touch via all the usual ways, Twitter, Instagram, Smoke Signal, Facebook, or email us, journalspotting at gmail.com. And if you're enjoying us trying to make the medical literature vaguely tolerable, then please rate, review, and subscribe. Barney, take it away. Oh, thank you very much, folks. Right. This T word, which you've heard banded around. I mean... This is one of the huge changes in COVID treatment, especially in the NHS in the last few months, and that is the use of tocilizumab. Tocilizumab? Tocilizumab. Yeah, I see the C. Tocilizumab. Tocilizumab. Yeah. Oh, we'll go with that. Right, tocilizumab. It's European, I think. <laughs> it's European. <laughs> it rolls off the tongue of most rheumatologists who have been using it for a number of years. However, for us mere medics, tocilizumab conjures up flashbacks of Random letters splattered over colourful and incomprehensible immunology images. Well, either that or just a complete blank screen. But it's here. NHS guidance. Tocilizumab can be used if a patient has severe COVID and is on ventilation, which is OBSFLOW or CPAP and above. But where does this decision come from? Yeah, Barney, I'm looking forward to some clarity on this. I haven't heard of tocilizumab since um, my family pub quiz and the, the category was interleukins. Ah, I mean, yeah, so that's a, oh, you know, a classic obviously. John family, uh, <laughs> sort of family gathering. That's probably what you did over Christmas. <laughs> um, keen COVID followers may be aware that the evidence has been varied and conflicting. And luckily, we are here. The journal spotters are going to plough through it. There are, as far as I can tell, seven randomi randomised controlled trials involving TOSI. Seven RCTs, Barney. Are, you, are we sure we're going to make things clearer here? Yeah, we may just muddy the water. Look, I'll, I'll, I'll keep it brief and I'll get to the main points. Don't you worry. Okay. Each of these trials are slightly different. For instance, they may be investigating a slightly different cohort or importantly, the proportion of patients on steroids differs. To try and keep my typical Barney waffle to a minimum, I'll merge the first four studies into one sentence. In the trials of patients where the majority did not also take steroids, tocilizumab appeared very safe and had, at most, trends towards being beneficial at reducing ITU admissions and death. But all of this was a little bit disappointing and mostly quite underwhelming. However, here come the next three important studies which you probably should be at least aware of. Good old Salma et al. come to the scene, with nearly 400 people recruited and published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Tocilizumab versus placebo. This was the patients not yet on ventilation, and about 83 of their participants had concurrent steroids. Their primary endpoint of intubation or death was 
just about significantly reduced in the tocilizumab group. Despite being a positive finding, there are a few questions about how robust the data was. So here comes REMAP-CAP, widely publicized, but not yet actually published. This trial involved 865 participants, 350 on tocilizumab, 50 on a drug called cerulimab, which is essentially a very similar monoclonal antibody, which, like tocilizumab, inhibits IL-6. That was question two of the family pub quiz. Ah, excellent. (laughs) And the rest had standard of care. About 88% of their participants had steroids, but this came after um, the recovery trial. And they looked exclusively at patients requiring organ support, i.e. ventilation. Good news. The primary endpoints were met. On IL-6 inhibition, there were significantly less days on organ support and, most importantly, hospital mortality was significantly reduced. Those on tocilizumab had a 28% mortality versus a 36% in the control group, with an adjusted odds ratio for survival so uh, of about 1.64. So, you know, quite impressive. Boom. The crowd goes wild. NHS England rubber stamps it. Tocilizumab can be given to anyone within 24 hours of ventilation whose platelets and liver function are okay and they're not already immunosuppressed. But then those pesky Brazilians have to jump in and sour the UK carnival. Vega et al. looked at 109 COVID patients requiring oxygen or ventilation. They compared tocilizumab to standard of care and over 80% of their participants also had steroids. Unexpectedly, they had to stop the trial early because of a significantly higher mortality rate in the tocilizumab group at 15 days. And that was 17% compared to 3%. Big difference. What do you think happened? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of crazy, actually. It was very unexpected. I mean, there's different ways of looking at it. I mean, it was a smaller study in the end because it had to be finished early, but the findings were still pretty significant. The increase in mortality, I should really emphasize, had not been seen in any other study thus far. Both studies had similar levels of steroids being used. They had slightly different inclusion criteria, but this doesn't seem to be the cause of the difference. So where on earth does this leave us? Well, we are still keenly using tocilizumab in the UK. However, there's a higher sense of mm, insecurity about it, okay? Should we be more picky about who we give it to? Possibly. Um, are the inclusion criteria correct? Possibly, possibly not. I think, Barney, what you're saying is to unpick this, we really need to chat to an expert in biologics. Ideally, someone with a background in education who can explain it all in simple terms to our simple brains. If only we knew someone. Ah, John, spoiler alert. Our next podcast after this one, listeners, is with with a Dr. James Galloway, who fits that bill exactly, and will help us pick apart this conundrum. Unless he's too busy and he cancels, in which case. (laughs) In which case, that that won't be happening. And (laughs) And this will be very awkward. (laughs) (laughs) All right, John, do you want to take us out of our confusion about tocilizumab and um, tell us a bit more about the delirium in COVID? Yeah, absolutely. So Barney, way back in March, when takeaway pints were only a novelty and not actually illegal, early studies reported very high levels of delirium in COVID patients. That's true, by the way. Takeaway pints are actually illegal at the moment. I looked it up. This paper, recently published in Lancet Respiratory Medicine, is probably the best characterization of COVID delirium we've got to date. 
It's a multi-center retrospective cohort study covering 69 sites, 14 countries, and 2,000 odd ITU patients from the first wave. Okay, decent numbers. Um, so is this just ICU delirium, do you think then? Yeah, so the authors are just looking at ICU delirium. And they're trying to characterize the prevalence and really the risk factors for delirium in the pandemic, given that it seemed to be such a prominent feature. Okay. And do they, you know, do they agree? Have they seen quite a high rate of delirium like we were expecting? Yeah. So in this cohort study, uh, the headline is that 55% of patients were delirious for a median duration of three days. And that's in a cohort that were the vast majority ventilated. So 87% spent some time mechanically ventilated. The factors that were independently associated with a higher rate of delirium the next day read like the usual menu of an ITU admission or a night out with George Michael. Mechanical ventilation, restraint use, benzodiazepines, opioids, and antipsychotics. This is the bit I really like though. Family visitation, either in person or virtual, was associated with a significantly lower risk of delirium. A bit of humanity does make a difference. Nice. And I think, you know, I think I've heard about that in other studies previously with delirium and not related to COVID. That's really interesting. So getting the family in either by by tablets you know, or in person was helpful? Yeah, absolutely. So the take home message here is that we now have evidence from this study of modifiable risk factors for reducing ITU delirium. Now, they're similar to what we knew before, but it's really important to remember them in the context of the pandemic. These are things like using less benzodiazepines and getting family to try and visit either in person or virtually. Yeah, so the take home message here is that we now have evidence of modifiable risk factors for reducing ITU delirium in COVID. Now, these are things we kind of knew before, but they're important to keep in mind in the pandemic, in particular family visitations, either virtual or in person, and trying to use less benzodiazepines for sedation. We know that patients with delirium are at high risk of ITU associated dementia and post intensive care syndrome. This is something we've discussed on a previous podcast. If you want to go back and listen, episode 10 with Dr. Joel Mayer about post-ITU syndrome and lifelines. Both of these things, ITU-associated dementia and post-intensive care syndrome, are dreadful for quality of life. And we really should be doing what we can to reduce the risks. Yeah, absolutely. These are things which can be done and should be done. So benzos away and uh, tablets out. Yeah, definitely. Incidentally, that slogan doubles as the UK education policy at the moment. So <laughs> pretty handy. That is now, pretty handy, isn't it? That's good. It's catchy. I like it. I have given us a bit of an update on delirium. Barney, I think you're going to update us on asymptomatic rates. It's good to be clarifying some of the things we talked about earlier in the pandemic, isn't it? Yeah, it's interesting. I think uh, I think it's a topic worth revisiting just briefly anyway. So what is the true rate of asymptomatic infections? Like six to eight months ago, we were quoting in the region of 80%. It seemed like everybody had an asymptomatic infection. However, what quickly became apparent was that it was unclear if participants were just pre-symptomatic or were never actually going to develop symptoms. And there was also this thing of, uh, in retrospect, people going, oh yeah, oh, actually no, no, I probably did have symptoms, yeah, but didn't realize at the time. The study collated some 60 different studies which met their eligibility criteria. The most useful studies were those which tested people longitudinally over, so over a period of time. To cut out a lot of data, what we are left with is that at least 33% of all COVID infections will never develop symptoms. Also, of people who have a positive COVID swab when asymptomatic, about 75% will never develop symptoms. However, this is the median number with a range between 11 and 100% across the studies. The data is useful, yes, for 
public health care measures, but also I find these statistics helpful to explain to patients and the public why they can't go out hugging people because they feel fine. It's also perhaps reassuring that if you do have a positive swab and feel fine, chances are you probably continue to do so. Nice. So it looks like we're settling on that 30% asymptomatic number. I think that's good to know. Definitely. Um, I'm also going to talk to us about a topic which we spoke about at the start of the pandemic in March and April, and that's um, ACE inhibitors, specifically stopping or restarting them, which is also basically every medical SHO's favorite point number two in their clerking plan. So it's no surprise that medics wanted to see if they could apply their favorite pastime of tinkering with ACE inhibitors to COVID. Is that, is that really why they're a problem, John? <laughs> no, sadly not. <laughs> You've probably heard it before, listeners, but just in case you missed it, the ACE2 receptor on cell membranes is acting as a bit of an open back door for SARS-CoV-2, sneaking into our cells and infecting them. ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers increase the expression of ACE2. Therefore, it makes sense to be worried that patients taking these medications long-term, which it turns out there are a lot of, might be at higher risk of severe disease. Yeah, John, I remember a lot of um, press releases, um, social media stuff, and a lot of questions and panic about this. I had like friends text me going, oh, God, Barney, should, I, should I stop my mum's ACE inhibitor when she had a heart attack, you know, <laughs> a few weeks ago and has blood pressure of 200, you know, you know, ridiculous things. People were planning on stopping it. And I remember the cardiology guidelines or cardiologists were saying, look, don't, just there isn't any evidence, keep it going. But there was a huge amount of panic about this. Yeah, nothing quite like a Twitter storm to influence everyone's medical practice. But now, fortunately, we've got two published trials to hopefully draw a line under this issue. The optimistically named Replace COVID was published in the Lancet Respiratory Medicine this month. It randomized 150 patients in an open-label trial across 20 hospitals in seven countries. Patients were either randomized to stop their RAS blocker, which is either an ARB or an ACE, or to continue it. This wasn't a blinded study. Headline is that there was no difference in outcome. In addition to this, we've got a much larger Brazilian trial with 650 adults, basically the same trial structure, and there was no difference in all-cause death, cardiovascular death, or COVID progression at 30 days. So we've now got two trials with conclusive evidence, don't stop ACE inhibitors because of COVID-19, but do stop them if there is another clear reason, examples of which will be found on the nearest core medical trainee clerking near you. ACE inhibitor-induced agranulocytosis. We get it, mate. You're sitting part two whatever. I remember those days so fondly. <laughs> oh, my differential diagnoses were brilliant. Um, and it probably cost them trust a lot of money in ridiculous tests. <laughs> okay. But you know, hey, John, it might be hard to stop it for a new dry cough there in the context of uh, COVID. Yeah, true, Barney. But just switch it to an ARB and carry on. Very nice. Good idea. <laughs> Anyways, Barney, I've chatted about my favorite drug class for too long. It's only fair that I give you a chance to chat about yours. Oh, mate, thank you. Um, a quick chat about oxygen. I think I've been fairly uh, conservative with my oxygen chat and maybe even with my oxygen therapy a little bit. Um, and the reason I want to cover this is many people are questioning this uh, sudden change in the NHS guidance, which came in November, that we should be aiming for saturations of 92 to 96% instead of the usual 94 to 98 is this just a, a bed-saving exercise, um, which potentially could be at the cost of patients? Well, you know, it's not just a bed-saving exercise. I'll put it this that way. Uh, and is it safe? I mean, the short answer is yes. The evidence cited in the NHS report mainly comes from the excellent IOTA, IOTA meta-analysis, which was published in the Lancet in 2018. Essentially, 
92 to 96% is safe in pretty much all conditions, unless you retain CO2 and should aim for 88 to 92, of course. If you give oxygen when the saturations are more than 96%, you're actually increasing the mortality. Too much oxygen kills people. Not as much as too little, I suppose, but that is true. But still, hyperoxemia kills. However, you're a clever bunch. I'm sure you all knew that. So IOTA has been backed up by a number of other studies and um, was included in guidance issued in the BMJ last year. We are expecting the National Guidelines on Oxygen Prescription by organisations such as the British Thoracic Society to change at the next rewrite based on this. Is there any specific evidence that this range is safe in COVID? Well, no, not yet. There may be some coming, but not yet. But really, there isn't any reason to suggest otherwise. And yes, there'll be a handful of patients at home each day from each hospital who would otherwise be waiting patiently or impatiently for their SATs to remain above 94% of oxygen. So there are many possible benefits of reducing your aim. Yeah, I've locumed in a few hospitals where SATs above 90, basically. Yeah. And home. And, and that's safe. That is safe. And, yeah. you know, as long as they, they are able and they're not too symptomatic with it, that's safe. So, so don't worry about it, people. Um, the guidelines comes from evidence and it's safe. Yeah. Nice. Well, uh, there's another area, Barney, that we just want a bit of clarity on, which I think you've looked at for us, um, which is blood clots in COVID. Yeah, absolutely, John. I think uh, many of our audience will have listened to our excellent episode with Professor Beverly Hunt, OBE, may I add, um, a few months back where we explored this issue. And amazingly, we're still looking for a bit of clarity on this in COVID. So there is accumulating evidence which is suggesting that hospitalized patients with COVID have a higher incidence of VTE. But the numbers vary massively with a rather optimistic range before this study, which was between 4% and 85%. So that really didn't tell us much. It's classic first wave trial numbers there. Yeah, isn't it just? Yeah, absolutely. Now we've got ourselves a systematic review to try and see the clots from the veins. I'm not sure that really works, but you, you know, you get my gist. Published in CHEST 2020, Professor Hunt and colleagues had given us a more accurate picture of COVID's impact on VTE. The incidences. For VTE overall, 17% in COVID. For DVT, 12%. And for PE, 7%. Regarding bleeding, they had a pooled incidence of 8% for all bleeding and 4% for major bleeding. Looking a little bit into the subgroups, ICU patients had a much higher incidence of VT at 28% compared to ward patients who are more like 7%. So a big difference. So this is the incidence, but I don't know what are we actually meant to do about it. Is normal thromboprophylaxis and low molecular heparin, all that sort of thing, enough? Should we be giving them treatment dose or BD dosing? Um, or is it all just immunothrombosis? Okay, so is it all just related to the inflammation and things? It doesn't really matter what low molecular, low eight heparin we give them. And most importantly, do all these events of VT actually make a difference to the patient's outcome? Hmm. John, a lot of questions there. You want to tell us about a couple of trials in the pipeline which are looking at this? Yeah, a few. So I've, I've had a little look. Um, we need to keep an eye out for the Inspiration Statin trial, which is looking at intermediate dosing, which is very on trend at the moment. And it'll be useful to get results of trials like the recovery trial, specifically looking at whether immunomodulation actually affects the rate of DVT. I think that'll be quite instructive. 
And there's one more thing to update everyone on, which I think is quite useful. It's not actually out in the literature yet, but it's worth being aware of. Regarding full-dose anticoagulation for COVID-19, there are three large clinical trials still ongoing. Remapcap, Active4, and ATTACC, ATTACK, which are all looking at full-dose anticoagulation in patients with moderate to severe COVID-19. Like with all trials, there's an interim stage at which a bunch of clever people get together as a kind of an independent panel to look at the results and see if there's a benefit or if in fact the interventions are doing harm. After the latest peak at these three trials, they have all announced that they are pausing enrollment of ITU patients with COVID-19 for full dose anticoagulation. This was on the grounds that there was a potential harm in these patients with higher risks of bleeding. We'll need to await the analysis of these interim results for sure. And in the meantime, non-ITU patients are still in the trial for full dose anticoagulation. But this is the first signal that maybe full dose anticoagulation might be doing more harm than good. Yeah, there we go. This is pretty much exactly what Professor Hunt was uh, was talking about, wasn't she? She was pretty concerned about this idea of giving lots of people treatment dose because she was someone who kept seeing the side effects of it. So once again, the evidence is following the experts. All right, we've got a bit more clarity on VTE incidents, um, but I guess we're just going to have to wait and see to find out what the really the appropriate management is. So thanks, John. Yeah, I've I've just got one more um, study I wanted to cover before we wrap up. Um, this is this is going to be about everyone's favourite non-pharmacological therapy for COVID: awake proning. Anyone who's been on a COVID ward recently will see that we've really run with the whole proning thing for hypoxic patients with COVID. Awake proning is my second favourite type of proning after asleep proning, otherwise known as sleeping. But Barney, does it work? Tell us what what is. I'm really teeing you up for this one, mate. What is, prone, what is proning again? Why do we do All right. it? So the aim of proning is trying to reduce your ventilation perfusion mismatch um, and to prevent shunting, okay, and improve recruitment to the dorsal of the lung. So that was very succinct and that was excellent. Don't go any further. Thank you very much. So the evidence for using this comes from mechanically venting. <laughs> Were you about to go on there? <laughs> right, carry on. Yeah, so the evidence for using this comes from mechanically ventilated patients with ARDS. That's a long way from Mr. Smith, who's awake on 40% and lying on his front with COVID, though. But case studies show that there is a short-term improvement in COVID patients in PAO2 and FIO2. This feasibility study, which has just recently been published, was done in North Carolina, USA, and published in the ATS. They basically wanted to test out a trial designed to assess awake proning. They randomized clinical teams within one hospital to either prone hypoxic patients or not to prone them. So it's a cluster randomized control trial. Now, this is only a feasibility study and not a proper trial. So the results aren't very instructive and they only include 40 patients. They did show for the record that the proned patients did have better oxygenation and spent less time hypoxic. I'm going to have to ask, John, of all the, uh, all the thousands of COVID studies, you chose one where you think the results are pretty useless. <laughs> <laughs> why are you why are you telling us about this yeah so the reason why is i think the discussion points are quite funny and quite instructive for our clinical practice <laughs> oh good in, okay. it, uh, the highlight being instructive rather than funny but they found that there was really low uptake in the prone patients with fewer than half of this group actually having a documented period in the prone position interviews with the patients revealed that anxiety discomfort and interference with other aspects of clinical care were barriers to proning and the second thing is that physicians thought that patients should spend about 12 to 16 hours proned. Hilariously, this was way off what the patients were actually doing, which was a little over an hour a day for most patients. 
I think this is, I'm just, yeah, I can just imagine this on our, on our ward when we've got um, you know, all these patients lying on their front. And for a start, some people actually seem very comfortable and that's probably because they're used to sleeping that way. And others, they're like, oh yeah, I'm just going to, just going to, and you turn your back and they're immediately on their back again. So uh, this is this is just life. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm bringing this up just because I think it's interesting to see how even in these trial conditions, proning was poorly adhered to. And there was a serious disconnect between physicians and their patients. So awake proning is safe, mostly, as long as you're not like trying to eat a grape or something. And it might slow the respiratory deterioration in COVID patients. And this in turn could help ease ITU strain. But worth keeping in mind that we don't have a clue if it actually makes a difference to outcomes. I suppose it's less dangerous than giving patients full dose anticoagulation based on no evidence, which is what quite a lot, few people have been doing. So, you know. Yeah, um, well. my, exactly. I mean, my experience is that, you know, it probably does help for a short amount of time. And like often these things, it's just a, perhaps a little bit of a holding measure, like most of the things are to see if you can get over the information or just hold things a bit longer. All right, John. Um, uh, Perhaps we should try and get back to our sort of our original COVID zone roots and um, talk about some more lighthearted COVID distractions. What have you got for us? Yeah. So before I bring this one up, I just want to say that lockdowns are incredibly hard and they're causing a lot of suffering around the world. And I'm sure that we're going to be seeing the ramifications of them for many months and for years to come, both medically and in wider society. I have to say that before I go on to give this little COVID distraction. Uh, have you heard of a gentleman called Thomas Dodd? Thomas Dodd? Um, no. no, I don't think so, no. Have you heard of Celine Dion? I I have heard of Celine Dion, okay. yes. So yeah, if you've yeah. heard of Celine Dion, you've also heard of Thomas Dodd, because Thomas Dodd <laughs> is a man from Staffordshire who essentially, while drunk, changed his name legally to Celine Dion didn't realize this is during lockdown didn't realize until he got the official documents in the post like what? three days later and then called the called his bank to double check and they were like yeah no absolutely yeah you've been your name's been changed to Celine Dion <laughs> how easy is it to how could you be so drunk to actually actually physically do that that sounds really complicated oh, he was dear. he said he was drinking a magnum of champagne um <laughs> <laughs> quote, quote, he's quoted as saying, I wasn't aware I had done it until I found that envelope in my post. Once it sunk in, I signed it straight away as I bloody love her. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, so there you have it. Thomas Dodd, now named Celine Dion. He's not in a rush to change his name back. And we need to maybe laugh a bit about lockdowns because they are hard for <laughs> <Yeah>. everyone. <laughs> um, so listeners, try not to get too drunk and change your name to something utterly ridiculous. Not that. Celine Dion is utterly ridiculous. Depends on your depends on taste of music. Um, yeah, thank you very much for listening. John, I, any key take-home points from uh, from our chat today? Barney, as always, I'm inspired by your love of oxygen. Oxygen sats between 92 and 96 are safe. Thank you for reassuring us. And I'm excited to talk about tocilizumab um, a little bit further with uh, Dr. James Galloway. Yeah, thanks, Sean. Um, I think two key points from yours. One about the delirium. It's really common in COVID. We see it a lot. And I think we need to be making a, a superhuman effort to make sure there is contact with family and doing things like that by FaceTime on iPads, etc. Uh, are key. And also, I think that's great. We've getting some more evidence that we should be pretty cautious with, um, you know, full dose VTE sort of treatment um, without knowing. So yeah, 
great take homes. Thanks, John. Yeah. And the final take home is be careful what you do after you drink a magnum of champagne in lockdown. Absolutely. Absolutely. Be very very careful, listeners. Be very careful. This is one of the crucial things. They should have government guidance on this sort of stuff. Stay home. Don't get too drunk and change your name. The next podcast is going to be presented by Ariana Grande and Kendall Jenner. (laughs) I don't even know who they are. You have no idea who they are. (laughs) I've heard of Ariana Grande. I have no idea who that other person is. Yeah. I'm I'm sure they're lovely. Is that going to be me? I'm not sure. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) Take care, listeners. Stay safe. All the best. Bye bye. Okay. Bye bye. You've been listening to Journal Spotting. Information and animations from today's show can be found on our website, journalspotting.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Special thanks to logo designer Natalia Florman, animations expert Costa, and awesome promotion team Abby and Isabel. If you've enjoyed the podcast, then why not subscribe and leave us a review? If you have any feedback or questions, then get in touch, journalspotting at gmail.com. Disclaimer time. This podcast is for educational use only. The views expressed are opinions based on our experience, experience of our guests, and the literature we read. We are not affiliated to an institution. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use the information we share to make decisions on how to treat your patients or even yourselves.